This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lumigo and Common Room. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Dr. Werner Vogels about the evolution of serverless at AWS. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 132. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca, how are you doing today? I am doing extra well today. If you've listened to our show before or seen screenshots of me drinking out of a Common Room mug, this guest is one of the big reasons why I joined Common Room. It's focused on developer communities and community leaders, and this person is super influential in developer communities, a super big supporter of developer communities. And I'm a little giddy, so I'm just going to say, Jeremy, would you do us the honor of introducing our guest today? Absolutely. This is an epic guest, and we are so happy uh, to have him here and have him spending some time with us to share some thoughts with our audience. Our guest today is the Chief Technology Officer at Amazon.com, Dr. Werner Vogels. Dr. Vogels, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So I have a feeling that most of our listeners know who Werner Vogels is, um, you know, reInvent and all the other amazing things that have happened. But just in case, could you just take a minute and uh, tell us a little bit of, or tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what the CTO of Amazon.com does? Oh, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, so I've been with Amazon now for 17 years. So I joined in, uh, in 2004, I was an academic before that, worked on distributed systems at Cornell. And, and the fun story is actually that I almost didn't join Amazon. Yeah, dude. So in those days, Amazon was just a retailer. Yeah. And so I got invited to come give a talk there and really do I have to go? Where is it? I mean, it's, it's. It's a bookshop, you know, it's a, it's a web server and a database. How hard can it be? <laughs> and, uh, I did go and I was blown away by the technology behind the scenes at, at Amazon, uh, as really anything that you could find in any computer science tech textbook was done to the absolute max high volume transaction processing, uh, machine learning already way before everybody was doing it, robotics, everything supply chain. And so it was an incredible, uh, let's say, uh, a challenge to, um, to, 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 to join them. And I've had uh, a good time since now CTOs have different roles. Yeah. And then I think there's sort of four or five dip different types of, of as you see around the world, the CTOs, some of them are pure infrastructure managers, others actually manage large teams and then you have CTOs, they are sort of big thinkers. Yeah. And I like to believe that when I joined that was, that was sort of my role as an academic coming in. Bringing sort of a bit of academic rigor to the kind of things that we were doing because we were reaching scale that nobody else in the world had done before. And so I think the leadership was hoping that I would bring a little bit of rigor and such that we, not only from a practical point of view, were really scalable, but also sort of from a theoretical fundamental point. Now, then, then all of these things happen. We built AWS, you launch AWS, and suddenly you become a technology provider. And then your role as CTO changes. Yeah, you become what I call an external facing tech, tech technologist, where it's important to talk to your customers, to get information back, to sort of get his, start this whole feedback loop and then start to think about what kind of new products should we be building for our customers or what are the things that we're not doing right. And, and so, um, your role starts to get very different then 
not that they asked for it, but it's just sort of evolved over time there. Right. So, uh, so speaking of, you know, building products for customers, I think one of the, you know, the, the really great things about AWS uh, and being customer obsessed is taking that feedback from customers and then building products with it. And so let's go way back to maybe 2014 and talk about Lambda functions, because I'm really curious, you know, we had a lot of conversations with other guests about what was the, you know, genesis of Lambda functions and so forth. But I'm really curious from sort of your point of view, what were the customer pain points that you were hearing um, from customers that sort of led to this idea of building Lambda functions uh, and this idea of, you know, sort of serverless? So, so first of all, you know, Lambda and serverless are not the same thing, right? Of course. Uh, I mean, it's, it's everything else, almost everything else in AWS is serverless by nature. Yeah, whether it's SQS, whether it's S3, whether it's Dynamo, whether it's pick, pick any product almost, and they're all serverless, which basically means that customers don't have to worry about scale. They don't have to worry about reliability. They don't have to worry about consistent performance, uh, managing costs, things like that. And so given that that was sort of the, uh, the basis of all the services that we were building, quite a few of us, the only thing that wasn't really serverless was actually compute. Now, now we weren't aiming for a serverless compute, but what we did see with customers is that they, quite a few customers had these, these small tasks that they just wanted to perform. And to do that, you had to run a, a fleet of EC2 right. instances because that was the only option that you had. So a good example there is, is a, a company called WeTransfer. I don't know if you ever mm -hmm. used them. It's if you have very large files, media companies use them all the time. Yeah. And so basically what they do, you upload it to S3 and then whoever needs to receive the file can download it from there. But what they also did, once the file was uploaded, they would run a virus check on it and compress it to sort of save bandwidth. To do that, they basically had to run dozens of EC2 instances waiting for work. Yeah. And, and so in essence, this is sort of a, it was an event-based system, but there was no really any mechanism to trigger the work that you wanted to do. And especially if this work was really small. It was hugely inefficient to run these very large EC2 fleets. So that made us think that, you know, in, in the essence, probably first, what kind of operations would we want customers to do on objects in S3? Right. Yeah, it's basically bringing computers closely to the data as possible and let it trigger by changes in the data. And so I've always been a, a big fan of loosely coupled architectures. And so we are thinking like, what kind of primitives can we build such that we can, we can enable this new pattern that, that we were, they were trying to, uh, to solve for our customers because it's way too complex. They were like, and so all the things that serverless does for customers, like what we just talked about, like scale and reliability things like that, we also wanted to bring that to compute then. And that is in essence, uh, the birth of Lambda. Now. This stuff happened way before 2014, because in the early days, we could already see these patterns happening. We just didn't have the experience and the knowledge of exactly how to build this, mm. also in a way that would be uh, affordable for our customers. Yeah, because of course, one, one part of being truly serverless and whether it's computer or not, is pay as you go. And customers with EC2 were paying as they go, but at that moment, I think they were still paying by the hour. Uh, and it took a while before that went to the minute. But still, whether you were doing any work in your EC2 instance or not, you had to pay for it. And so 
making a switch, a fundamental switch that you only paid for actually execution time was a radical shift in just thinking about how can we change compute to being lightweight and nimble, allow a whole new set of patterns to, uh, to just arrive. Now we all know what happened since, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, uh, it's slightly, it's a bit more further than where we were in 2014. Uh, and I think that has to do with also with the success of, of the overall, of the, how well it resonated with customers. Yeah, because pretty quickly we saw a, a significant uptick in the use of um, all of Lambda. Strangely enough, I would think so, uh, by enterprises. Mm. Yeah? Mostly because normally when you think you do this very innovative new technology, it will be the young edge, uh, whatever, startups or, or that kind of part of the world that would be first uh, adopting it. But enterprises immediately had figured out that this was way too good a deal for them as well. Yeah, because now suddenly you only had to pay for compute. Now, most enterprises had never encountered that. Mm. Yeah. Typical enterprise data center runs at 12, 15% uh, utilization, if you're lucky. Yeah. Which basically means that 85% of the, their energy that flows through their servers yeah, is useless. And so really going down to having the, the sort of smallest primitive and only have to pay for the execution of that. That also was a game changer. So I love the idea. I love the idea of thinking about enterprises and being nimble. So often people don't put those two words together, right? But the idea of nimble compute and that that is what the serverless paradigm, Lambda functions and everything that was already serverless that they were talking about, like it's, we're moving towards more nimbleness. And so I'm wondering if, if what were the different ways that you saw customers using Lambda functions when they came out or this like larger expanded, you know, paradigm of serverless that continued to push mm -hmm. AWS to launch even more services and grow that portfolio so much in the past seven years, eight years. Well, I don't think there is any, I mean, so many customers, millions of customers, big, small, you know, life sciences, oil, gas, what is it, e-commerce, there isn't, there isn't a... There isn't a vertical that is not making use of AWS. And of course they all have their, their own challenges in, in, in that, that sense. But, but if I think, for example, about anyone that runs very large e-commerce operations, yeah, quite a few of those can be just really encoded as a serverless oper operation, because most of those are very small actions that you want to take. Put this in my shopping cart, yeah, move the shopping cart to this particular state. Yeah. And so. The operations on it are relatively small. It allows you to, um, build, I mean, what is it truly microservices, but I think the smallest unit of compute that you'd want to do. Now, I think that has lots of other implications. Uh, for example, your, your security service, your attack service becomes really small. And so, and you can uh, become way more agile in, in developing your functionality. Now I've seen customers take mainframe code which is actually largely event-driven often, and just start chopping them up and just taking them out of the mainframe and start running them as, as Lambda functions. Now, if it becomes popular, then of course, given that there's lots of development around it, then you need to do all the languages. Yeah. And then everybody, everybody's happy with having Ruby. And then you go on to, and why don't we have this? Why don't we have Rust? Where's Go? Where's Go? Yeah. Where's Go? <laughs> hey, .NET 6 launched, was it a week ago? So 
yeah, we continue to make progress there. And yeah, well, so we're coming back to what you actually asked about and, and enterprises. I do think enterprises love efficiency. Yeah. And so there's two sides of efficiency here. You, you don't need a big DevOps operation to babysit these, yeah, because after all, you don't need to manage instances. You don't have to replicate yourself over multiple AZs and automatically scale up and whatever, all the challenges you have, if you have a, a VM-based approach, because in essence, you're still running servers. Yeah, it's just not your server. It is not your physical server underneath that, but you're still running what we knew as a service, still Linux kernel or, or windows. And, and as such, you know, you can significantly reduce your staff or have them focus on things that actually really matter for the enterprise, which is not doing this undifferentiated lifting, lifting where nobody wins right. there. So let Amazon do that for us. Let, let AWS do that for us. So I think enterprises really understand that part of efficiency. And then indeed only having to pay for what you've used is great. I, I think a great example in the earlier days, I think we had them on stage, Ben Kahoo, uh, of iRobot. Right. And so why, why did they build a completely serverless environment? Because the digital services that they were offering came for free. Yeah. They buy a Roomba and then you get all this, what is it, this house measurement and, and all this other stuff that comes with it. You don't have to pay for that, or at least in those days you didn't. So for their business, it was important to completely reduce every possible cost yet have this wonderful digital experience around it. And, and so for them, yeah, they are an enterprise after all, no, they really went down the serverless path to really make sure they could be as nimble as possible. Right. Right. And you, and, uh, and again, Ben Kehoe and, and iRobot, you always hear the story of, you know, Christmas day where nobody gets woken up because it just scales and everybody opens their new Roomba for Christmas. But you mentioned the uh, smallest unit of compute, right? Which brings us, uh, you know, to this, I, I'm very passionate about this idea of micro VM architecture. When AWS launched Firecracker, most people were like, oh, I don't think I have anything to do with this. I'm like, no, 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 think about this, right? So this is one of these things where, you know, this, this is close to the metal as possible. And, and, this gets us to this larger idea where I, I'm kind of bothered by the term serverless containers. I don't know why I just am. But I feel like this idea of adding too many layers of abstraction between your code and the machine just is less efficient. It's not, you know, it's not where we want to be. So I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on serverless containers? And, and do you think that we need to move more towards this micro VM architecture so that all that security, all of that smallest unit of compute that that's running as close to the metal as possible to make these services more efficient. Well, you really gave the answer. So what, what, what do you want me <laughs> I'll to step say? in here. I no, just I'm want kidding. you to agree with me. That's <laughs> no, no, all no, I no, want. No, no, so, <laughs> no, I do think compute lives on a continuum. Yeah. And so you start off with, with the VMs, you have your containers, you have your functions. Each have their own application area. Now, I mean, we have still have tons of software especially if you bought it or you, you had it made for your own data center that just needs to run in a server. It just needs to run in the big VM. And so on the continuum, you know, if you look at containers, containers still run for all VMs, right? It's still the same VM underneath there. And you had to manage those clusters. So. There again is work that has no impact on your application. It's just stuff you have to do. Again, it's heavy lifting. So can take that away. That would be great. 
Now, now the, the roots of firecracker are more underneath Lambda. Yeah, so because when we launched Lambda, we still were using our own computing infrastructure, which basically is VMs. Yeah, but if you look at the, the, the Linux kernel and, and the VMs, uh, the attack factor is huge right there. And right. also there's so much overhead. There's so many devices in there. Uh, and there's all these things that, that you absolutely don't need. Now in a parallel track, we started working on Nitro, which is doing basically the same way we do with virtualization with them with the hardware. And, and we can come back that to, to that in a minute, but basically we were taking the same approach. So what is the minimum VM that you need such that you can guarantee security and you can actually really optimize and manage sort of resource usage on your hardware. And that was the birth of Firecracker. Yeah, and I think it, it's massively increased the efficiency of Lambda, drove the cost down as well, both for you guys, as well as for, for, for us. And it also gave us an, a very good platform, uh, for, for example, working on how to get, uh, how to get pre-warmed much faster. You know, how do we, uh, I mean, we would never have been able to do controlled concurrency using regular VMs. Right. Yeah. So both of these, so working on Firecracker only initially originated for, for, for Linda. Then we started looking at containers and saying, yeah, but these guys have the same problem. Yeah. They also have to run on, on big VVMs. They don't run on small VMs, big VMs. You know, I'm not really that keen on the security posture. If you want to run a lot of these things next to each other, then, then, you know, you want to have better control. So I think that's really what, uh, firecracker gave us. And, and do I believe that, that containers are, can be truly serverless? Yeah, because it takes care of the same thing. You know, if you have configured it right. You know, we do the AZ spreading for you. We do performance management. We can actually have them grow and shrink. And there may be some more parameters that you need to set about sort of the kind of things you want to do. But I do think containers have a, are a, a great pattern for those uh, engineers or those companies that want to move from the monolith that they have sitting in VMs yeah, and actually start to think about modernizing their, their arch architecture. Mm. Yeah. And so. The decomposition of these big monoliths, um, if you, if you look at it, you know, there's, there's probably components in there that need to scale massively. Let's say your login or your, your security or what's it, your identity, for example, on each page that comes in. And there may be things that don't need to scale that much. That may be the shopping cart, which only gets used when you actually have to check out. However, if you need to scale it to the smallest component in that, or the, the, the component with the highest need for scale, you have to scale everything. Mm. So you can think about, I can decompose for performance reasons, for scale, I can decompose for security reasons. Because remember, I, I don't really want my, my shopping cart code to have access to the credential store for identity. But however, right. if you see some one monolith, you don't have those separation. So. There's multiple reasons for being able to do performance and scale security, why you would want to decompose. And then the step going from there to sort of the, that next, going from the monolith to a, a, a microservices architecture, if you would want to call it like that, is easiest to do with containers. And why is because the development tools are almost identical. You can use the same compilers, you use the same frameworks, you, 
And things that you can do in a regular VM, you can also do in a container. Mm-hmm. Now, the tools for um, serverless development, serverless compute development, uh, have still a long way to go until they are really at the same level as the tools we have for computing VMs or compute in, in, in con- containers. And as such, there is room for, for all of this. Yeah. Maybe there's a the next phase, which is uh, nano services or something like that, <laughs> uh, where you decompose your microservice into even smaller building blocks, and then you can do the dilemma. Now, these things all need to work also seamlessly together. So I think, I don't think you can see Lambda without uh, API gateway. I mean, the two are, are interlinked with each other. Yeah. And, and you'll also use API gateway to talk to your containers. So maybe, you know, some of your URLs go to, go to Lambdas and, and others may go to containers. Right. And you get that strangler, strangler fig pattern too, right? So you can. Yeah, but it's also, the reason why I bring up Nitro is that we continue to think about what is the minimum set of of functionality that we need to have on the box. Yeah. Right. And in this particular case with Nitro, what we did is we started offloading it to, to all the boards that we build ourselves. And that allowed us to build a VM that is absolutely minimal, at least the DOM zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, It still runs regular VMs on, on top of that, but at DOM zero, we can now use our own hypervisor. And that one is, is minimal compared to the DOM zero that used to be a complete Linux screen. Hi everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor Lumigo. Gain full visibility into Lambda invocation flows quickly with Lumigo, the cloud monitoring and troubleshooting platform that helps developers like you see the whole story end to end. Resolve critical issues in serverless and distributed environments, giving you better insights into your Lambda's mind. Start free today at Lumigo.io. I love that you're talking about, I mean, efficiency across different dimensions, right? And it's like, is it the dimension of performance? Is it the dimension of security? It's the dimension, well, security is always number, like priority zero, as we know. (laughs) And so you're talking about decreasing overhead. And I love how you also say there's so much further to go in terms of this technology, because I feel like people have already feel like they've come so far and they're like, oh, my gosh, where are we going next? And you're like, listen, we're going to nano micro mini. (laughs) So you made this prediction that something else that will will become more efficient, right, is this move toward sustainability and that sustainability will get its own architecture. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you mean by sustainable architectures, how these things fit together, and how serverless fits into that. Well, well, I think that first of all is, of course, that sustainability and efficiency are kind of linked to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are, if you start running on ARM processors and you suddenly reduce the cost by forty percent, you probably also have used less energy. Yeah. So, but that's that's one. So it's it's the will be the things we have been doing in the first days or even maybe before AWS, where we've done so much innovation inside our data centers. We are the largest wind farm operator east of the Mississippi or something like like that. Um, And so we've been investing in these massive uh, uh, power parks, um, whether it's it's solar energy or or wind energy, uh, to make sure that every every electron that we take in is a green electron. So one way of thinking about sustainability 
is, is that just as that we have with security, there's a shared responsibility model. Yeah, there's parts of, let's say the, the, the lower layers where we talk about data centers and, and hardware and chip development and things like that, where, um, we've become extremely efficient because we've done so much innovation in that space. We also help us drive costs down, of course, for our customers, but the way that we do, um, power recycling, water recycling and, and, and moving power through the data centers. Um, as such, we have a whole series of options for our customers there to pick from. Yeah. Which hardware do you choose? Which, which containers do you choose? Um, and, and of course we need to make sure that, that our customers are aware of sort of their carbon footprint when they make certain choices. And I think there's a lot more work going to happen in that space, but the carbon footprint uh, tool already gives customers some insight in their historical, uh, uh, carbon footprint usage. Now then the lay on top of that, where our customers have to make decisions. And I think a good example there is, is if they use the, um, the sustainability pillar of the real architected framework, how, what, what technology should I be picking for the particular solution that I have, if I have these sustainability goals. Yeah, and I think sort of there are uh, hardware choices or, or you choose Lambda or you choose container for certain, under certain uh, conditions and rules, or should I run my own database or should I use RDS or Aurora? Those kind of choices are choices that you make at a sort of technology selection level. Then there's also the architectural level. Yeah, well, how am I building this? Am I being able to stitch multiple lambdas together in a sort of event-driven architecture or, you know, what is my, oh, how do I think about resilience? Yeah. Do I, do I really need to run in multiple ACs? Yeah. Or, or because of course, that's how we grew up with because we gave you these ACs and we were very proud that you can build these highly full tolerant applications on top of that. But we don't all process financial data or, or life sciences yeah, or, or medical data and things like that, maybe under a number of conditions, you know, you will be fine for this particular subset of your application to just do failover and have a one minute outage. And so that might actually significantly reduce your usage. But then I also think that we need to start thinking not only about sort of that architecture, the impact on your customers. But also, what do we present to our customers? Actually, we've all become addicted to very heavyweight web pages, massive amounts of video and, and, and imagery and, and luxury. And you know, some web pages literally are tens of megabytes. The question is, is that really, if you think about the sustainability point of view, could we do with less and as such, you know, save on storage save on compute, save on bandwidth. Yeah. And you might do that purely from a sustainability point of view. And I think we need to start to reflect on how we've built our applications, um, whether that is the most sustainable way, assuming that that is something that you want to pursue. Yeah. And I think, I think that has to do with, uh, this idea of resiliency too, right? Like if you can build resilient applications, um, you know, if part of it goes down, is there a way that you can start serving, you know, a little bit more of it? And I know you're a big fan of distributed systems and I can't remember who said the quote, but somebody said something like, uh, everything fails all the time. I, I can't remember who said that, but, yeah. but essentially, um, that's true in distributed systems, right? You always, you have, you have information flying around 
And, and one of the things that actually has sort of come back up, and you mentioned event-driven applications that were sort of original you know, mainframe things, but this idea of EDA has come back up big time now, especially with you know, building a tiny Lambda function that does this or having you know, to, to you know, share information across multiple microservices and things like that. So I'm just curious your thoughts on sort of where we are with event-driven applications now, or at least the, the, the tools that Amazon and AWS has built to do this, and is there more investment? Do we is there more things we have to do to continue to enable and allow people to build better event-driven applications? So I think what we've seen, if you go beyond Lambda, uh, I think if you just look at the Lambda ecosystem itself, uh, layers, uh, Sam, all these other tools, earlier tools, actually all all have helped to become more efficient. But I also think you have to look at the complete ecosystem around it: uh, API gateway, event bridge. You know, and, and then take, take everything else. Take, take SQS, take DynamoDB, take S3. I mean, all of them are serverless. Yeah, and as such, the integration between them becomes, is always important, but also how easier can we make it to build solutions on top of this? Because in essence, you know, yeah, I mean, we can, we can talk a little about, a lot about sort of this one function that you want to build, but in the end, our systems are slightly more complex than that one function. Yeah, and so I think step functions have become a crucial tool mm. in all of that. Yeah, because again, you see, we launched Lambda and it's fun because you thought, oh, you know, you deliver this file or this, this message in this queue or whatever, and this one function gets triggered. Well, it turns out it's never one function. Yeah, and it is, then so many customers had to start doing all the heavy lifting again. They had to figure out, oh, has this function failed? What are the steps that they need to do after this function has failed? Yeah, and so building step functions, for example, has, I think, greatly improved the composition model uh, for, for Lambda. But, but I can never uh, see Lambda separate of all the other pieces that we have, because I think serverless is just as important for, for those areas. I mean, when um, now Redless, uh, Redshift serverless. Mm. Yeah, you know, only have to figure out except how many of these pillars do you, do you, do you need? Or, you know, Aurora, uh, RDS. I mean, all of this, take RDS. RDS is also one of these sort of old fashioned kind of things where we started off with, yeah? In essence, you know, we had object storage, we had network and security and things like that, EC2, and a database because everybody needed a database. Yeah, but in the beginning, definitely RDS still meant that you had to manage your database. Right. Yeah, and anything you want to do, do you want to have it, do you want to scale up, do you want to scale down, things like that, yeah, very impossible. Well, it was also software built by other people, of course, largely, yeah, because it was MySQL or Postgres. But then moving those to a serverless architecture means then suddenly, hey, you know, you take away, again, the heavy lifting around it. And then it also gave us the opportunity to do this, this massive innovation under the covers that became Aurora. Because I think the, the, the sort of log file layout is a complete departure from how we used to build relational databases. Anyway. <laughs> so thinking, thinking about. <laughs> no, but for me, serverless is still, you know, it is still, I, I still get annoyed by every piece of AWS that is not serverless. <laughs> That's it. That's actually the title of this episode. I still get annoyed by every piece of AWS that is not serverless. <laughs> 
Today's podcast is both literally sponsored by Common Room, the intelligent community growth platform that helps you deepen relationships, build better products, and drive business impact, and figuratively sponsored by it because my favorite co-host, Rebecca Marshburn, is the head of community there. Today's fastest-growing companies that you know and love, like Grafana Labs, Temporal, Confluent, DBT Labs, Imply, Webflow, and Atlassian, use Common Room to grow, engage with, and support their communities. With Common Room, they can see who's interacting across all of their different community sources, including GitHub, Slack, Stack Overflow, Twitter, and Discourse, to quickly understand things like how people are feeling about a new feature release, who needs product help, or where there's a bug. Common Room also delivers great granular insights by providing filters that allow them to find community members by specific skill sets and contributions, like who uses which programming languages, who made more than 25 pull requests, and who's creating excellent content that should be rewarded and amplified across the community. You can try out Common Room for free at commonroom.io. So you're, you're talking about service evolution, right? And obviously each, all these services evolve. And I'm curious, like from the serverless launches at reInvent last year in 2021, like SageMaker serverless, I think sometimes these, these things happen, right? Where AWS launches them in preview, knowing that there's a, a full product vision and it will continue to evolve. And then at some point it goes GA and that's not the end of its evolution. Obviously it keeps going, um, depending on what customers need and what you're hearing. Uh, but I'm curious if you can talk about some of your some of the serverless launches from reInvent that came out in preview and, and how they're moving toward that evolution as they as they reach their full vision that you all had for them. Well, you know, having a full product vision is a bit of an overstatement. <laughs> yeah. No, because if you would look sort of two years after the launch, is the product still the same that we did that we that we went GA with? No, absolutely not. Yeah, uh, and and I think it's sort of that's a little bit of an old style thinking. I, I'm not not blaming you for that, but it's sort of thinking like when when software releases came in really big batches, right? And it's either and I don't know if it's saying about patching and and bugs and things like that. Just a release every two years, maybe, or something like like that. And that that works really well if you have total control over the over the ecosystem. You're the one who decides how it's going to look like, and nobody else cares. And everybody follows your rules. Yeah, I think, you know, Microsoft has done an amazing, great job in that over the years. And, and indeed, you know, when you switched from whatever, Win32 to .NET, that was a radical departure, but, you know, it came with all the guidance, it came with lots of documentation, it came with lots of community and all these things around it to get that done. And that was sort of the old style. And that's fine as long as you control the complete block. Now, when we started cloud, one thing that we really wanted to do was make sure that we weren't building the things that were relevant two or five years ago when you started architecting this really big piece of software, but that we will be again, nimble and focused on primitives. Yeah. And instead of just these, these big blocks, well, that meant that we needed to create a culture and we should get things in the hands of our customers really quickly and don't see what they were going to do with it. Because to be honest, you know, we didn't know how people would want to develop in 2025. Yeah? And I think between now and 2025, there's a lot of cool stuff still going to happen based on how, let's say, modern development is happening. And in a sense, 
we don't want to be the gatekeepers that tell you what you can and what you cannot do. Yeah. But that means that we do need to get things in your hands pretty quickly and then see what you would want to do with it. Yeah. So when we released Dynamo, we already knew customers wanted secondary indices. Right. Yeah? And so, but we left it off when we launched it. Why? Because first of all, it was quite new technology. People hadn't really used it before. Um, and as such, we wanted to get, get their, we wanted them to get their hands dirty and then see what they were doing with it and where they would start to complain about. And as such, and you know, the culture within AWS is such that we, we allow our customers basically to reorder, to reorder our roadmap. And for Dynamo, for example, it became clear that customers wanted certain security features with a much higher priority than they wanted secondary indices. And then what you start doing then is sort of looking at what, what customers are doing um, with your product. Where, where are they actually putting work in that you think they shouldn't be putting work in? Yeah, um, cross-region replication for S3, for example. Customers were doing that by themselves. Yeah? Or um, what we saw quite a few is, is when we changed the consistency model in, in S3. We saw that customers were doing all the work to make it strongly consistent, where actually we should have been doing that, or we should be doing that for, for them. Yeah. And, and as such, you know, you continuously look at your customers, they may not even consider it to be heavy lifting, but we can look at it and go like, yeah, but it's not only you is doing it. I mean, Fox is doing it as well and CNN also. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we should fix this for you. And, and we can do that because we're not tied into this one big architecture that we decided on five or 10 years ago. We are continuously looking for how's modern development happening and what do we need to do? And so that, that allows us even after GA to continuously evolve the product. There is it, and I think the official number is somewhere between 90 and 95% of all features and services in AWS are driven by customers. Yeah, not, not us. So another thing that uh, I know you're a big supporter of, um, uh, Werner, are all the uh, AWS community programs, like the Heroes program and the Community Builders. Um, you know, you gave that awesome award, the, go, the Now Go Build Award to Matt Coulter uh, on the stage <laughs> at reInvent uh, 2021, which was awesome. He's done so much amazing work. And I'm just curious, you know, what, what is it about these communities, um, you know, that encourage all these developers to, you know, sort of learn and, and just, uh, you know, advance their careers and just, you know, build new things. Like, why is that so important to you? Well, well, first of all, I think, um, you know, as we have, we're so fortunate as developers. Yeah. I think we have all of the most creative jobs in the world. Yeah. We can go to work every morning or wherever we work these days. And create something new, yeah, or learn a new technology. Right. And as such, learning is a is a crucial part of my job. Yeah, you, I, I don't know how many people are still stuck on C plus plus just because they don't want to learn any new languages. But I don't think there are that terribly much. Yeah, and, and as such, you know, we we learn new programming languages. We learn, you know, we we learn new frameworks. We we start thinking about how to architect things differently. And we, we are continuously learning. And there is no better learning than from your peers. Now, of course, I can stand on stage and lecture you. This is how thou shall develop software. But it's much, much more interesting to hear about the things that didn't go well, or that are hard, or that you have to work around. And you know what? Your, your peers probably know that. And then I'm, I'm very fortunate to have such a 
huge uh, uh, group of people that are so passionate about our technology that are willing to, to write about it and talk about it or do podcasts about it or that and it's such, that is so valuable because you probably learn more from your peers mm. than that you will learn for, from, from us. Yeah, the really hard, the, the reason why you go to Stack Overflow to actually do copy and paste on some code, yeah? And you can see Stack Overflow or, or, or platforms like that as, as a community. Good. You ask a question, you get a, you get an answer. And so, or, or you copy and paste something, but yeah, no, no. And, and plus, you know, as such, I think it is for us as Amazon, making sure that people that work in our community or that are our heroes, uh, and actually get the right tools or get early access to the tools or get their hands dirty early, early such that they can actually be valuable players as well. Yeah, and, and I don't know, Jeremy, whether you've written a book already, but I saw that Colter actually came out with a book on CD. Right. No book for me yet. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there may be some other perks around it as, as well. And you know what? I don't know. As, 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 uh, as technologists, we, um, we also like to be heroes. Right. Yeah. We like to help other people. Yeah. And, and as such, I mean, I think it is just, I, these are programs are, are tremendously important, not only to AWS, but definitely to all the other customers. Right. So Werner, thank you so much for, for being here, uh, and just sharing all this knowledge with, uh, you know, with our community and of course, all the other work that you do, if people want to sort of keep tabs on all the amazing things that you're doing and Amazon's doing, or even maybe share some of their customer success stories uh, with you, well, what's the best way for people to do that? Uh, Twitter? Always a good, a good answer. answer. No, no, I find That's a good answer. No, dude, no, dude. Keep, keep track of the, um, the, there's a whole series of blogs these days at, at AWS. And, and one of my favorites actually is the, the Amazon science blog. Mm. Yeah. Where we talk a bit about harder stuff that doesn't really necessarily look immediately applicable, but that sort of in the lay, uh, for example, all, all the posts that have went on there on automated reasoning all the tools that sit underneath inspector and, and reachability analyzer and Macy and all these kind of, kind of tools, the fundamental science underneath there, for example, we have a whole blog on that. And, and so the whole series of blogs that we have at AWS, I think are, are an excellent source of, of, of that, but you know, you also need to be able to get your, um, what's it, your event driven ping. <laughs> Yeah. And as such, I think, uh, uh, platforms like Twitter are ideal for that to sort of follow, follow those four or five official AWS uh, spokespersons there. And uh, I think you, you'll get a good handle on, on, on the kind of things that are happening. Awesome. And then, uh, of course you have your blog, all things distributed.com. Thank you again. And one thing I just want to say before I let you go, you know, the work that you've done over the years at Amazon, uh, for me and millions of other AWS developers, I mean, this is our livelihood. Like, I don't even know what I would be doing if serverless wasn't a thing and, and, and all the stuff you built. So thank you on behalf of me and all the other developers that, uh, uh, you know, that make our living off of, off of the amazing things and innovations that have been created. Thank you. Thank you again for that. Uh, we'll get all of these links in the show notes. Thanks again. Werner was great. Remember, it's still day one. We've got a lot more things to do. Awesome. 
And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Werner Vogels for being our guest this week and to our sponsors, Lumigo and Common Room. If you want to check out the show notes and the full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 132. For more serverless chat, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odelay and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.